You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, the United States government warns that war in Europe may be imminent. One after another, countries are urging their citizens to evacuate Ukraine as that country's president cautions the West against creating panic. I'll be joined by an all-star panel to examine just how dangerous this moment may be. Then, an exclusive interview with the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. I will ask him about his dangerous neighborhood, Afghanistan, India, China, and about Islamic terror in his country and abroad. Let's get started right away. Um, we'll do the take a little bit. The drumbeat of war seems to be beating ever louder as the United States says a Russian invasion of Ukraine may be imminent. Meanwhile, a top French official tells CNN his country sees no indication from Putin that he will invade. What is the truth? Does anyone know except Putin himself? Let's get right to today's panel. CNN's diplomatic editor Nick Robertson joins us from Moscow. Sophie Petter is in Paris where she is the bureau chief for The Economist. And Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Nick, let me start with you. A crucial question many have been asking is, what is the mood inside Russia? Is Russia, is the government preparing the public for war? Remember, all Russian uh, media is essentially state-controlled, so it would give us some indication of the Russian government's intentions. We watch it carefully for that reason. Uh, at the moment, you do see uh, those pro-Russian separatists from the east of Ukraine on the state television here saying, look, the United States is providing weapons to the Ukrainians. Please help us and please give us weapons. Russia denies that it does, but there's plenty of evidence support to support that it does. So that's, that's one of the messages that's on state television. Another piece of messaging is, you know, uh, what, how Western news organizations are reporting the tensions in Ukraine at the moment. And that's used on state television to say that it's the United States and Europe that, that's driving up the tensions there. And, and I think the other piece that's sort of fallen into place over the past few days, of course, Russia going through its big military exercises in Belarus and, uh, and around other parts of Ukraine. Um, and Russian television uh, reporters and camera crews have been allowed in uh, yesterday for the first time. And they've been speaking with generals. They've been speaking with soldiers. Clearly, clearly, we've listened to it carefully. It's pretty well scripted stuff. But that's, again, sort of raising the profile of what's happening. But I think generally you speak to people here. 
they're not inclined to believe state media, and there isn't really a sense that uh, the country is about to go to war. And, it, and it's not something that the leadership is, is coming out on television and speaking about. So there's a, there's a, a quasi readying of people, but, but not full scale. And Nick, uh, what, what is their attitude, as far as you can tell, toward Ukrainians these days? Generally, Russians think of Ukrainians as their brothers. But is the state media trying to portray the Kiev government as kind of the enemy? Certainly the government and, uh, and an absolute diminution of President Zelensky at every opportunity. And President Putin, uh, when he met with President Macron, they held a press conference just on Monday, uh, you know, six days ago. He used some really uh, pretty vile language, I suppose is the best way to put it, when referencing Zelensky. And you hear that in abundance here. But, but you speak to Russians on the streets and they say, look, no, you, Ukrainians are, are brothers. Uh, we can't see ourselves going to war with them. And I think that's a very pervasive uh, feeling here, but certainly at a political level. And Zelensky in particular, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, he comes in for an extreme amount of criticism, both on the television here and from the leadership. Uh, Richard Haas, would it be fair to say that at some level, Putin has achieved his main goal? which is that he has rattled the West so much about the prospect of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Um, in any case, that was, un, that was a, a, a long shot. It now seems very difficult to imagine the Europeans, for example, Germany going along with that. And if that's true, does that oddly provide the possibility of some kind of diplomatic off-ramp here? Well, as you say, Fareed, uh Ukraine was never on the cusp of joining NATO. So this in some ways consolidates or reinforces what wasn't going to happen. I think his problem though, is it might strengthen ties uh, between Ukraine and the European Union. It also cre has created a stronger sense of Ukrainian national identity. And it's hard for me to see how that helps either Mr. Putin or Russia, plus he's paying a price for this, which is the strengthening of NATO and transatlantic relations, at least so far. So he, he may have pushed off even further the idea of uh, Ukraine entering NATO or NATO entering Ukraine. But I, I, he's paid a considerable price for it. Do you think that the administration has so far handled this well? They have they've put they've consolidated the West. The deterrence angle seems to be fairly strongly in place. Um, now, do you think there is also a, a clear dip diplomatic off ramp? Uh, the short answer is yes, I do think they've handled this well. Uh, they've strengthened NATO, they've strengthened Ukraine's ability to resist uh, an, an occupation. They threatened all sorts of economic sanctions. As you say, Fareed, they've provided various diplomatic off-ramps, both in the eastern part of Ukraine, if people want to revive the so-called Normandy process, as well as what we were just talking about with European security. The problem for the administration is they don't hold the initiative here. This is a crisis largely brought about in, the, in recent months by Mr. Uh, Putin. He really has to decide how this is going to play out. And strategically, uh, this simply isn't good for administration. As you know, they want to put the lion's share of their calories to focus on the so-called Indo-Pacific, in particular on China. And what do they find themselves dealing increasingly with European security as well as with the Middle East? So this has strategically become a much more demanding world for the administration. So this can't be in the long-term interest of the United States. 
Stay with us. When we get back, I'm going to ask Sophie Petter about Macron's diplomatic initiative. Ben Wallace, the British Defense Secretary, said there's a whiff of Munich in the air, meaning appeasement, and I wonder whether he's talking about Mr. Macron's trip to Moscow. I will ask Sophie Petter, who accompanied Macron, when we come back. And we are back with Nick Robertson in Moscow, Sophie Petter in Paris, and Richard Haas here in the United States. Um, Sophie, let me ask you how you would describe what Macron was trying to do in that uh, trip to Moscow and what he thinks he got from it and what he, where he failed. Well, I think what he's trying to do is use what he sees as an extremely narrow opportunity to uh, pursue dialogue at a time when he does not underestimate uh, the volatility of the situation, the gravity of the situation, nor the need to continue with deterrence and with the threat of sanctions. I think what he's hoping is that he can, through what they call the Normandy format, that's to say four-way talks with France, Germany, Ukraine and Russia, uh, pursue a sort of uh, talks that can find a settlement that avoids war. Now, I, I don't, nothing suggested to me during the trip I made with Macron on Monday to Moscow and then to Kiev on Tuesday that he's na faintly naive about this. He talked about the potential for incandescence in Europe. Uh, he knows that it's extremely tense. He said that his meeting with Putin was palpably tense as well. Um, all of that was extremely difficult um, and it may all come to nothing and this is, you know, remains to be seen. I think that's why yesterday you saw in the communique that the Elysee Palace put out after the Putin-Macron phone call yesterday that Macron had said to Putin that, you know, the dialogue could only be sincere if there is no escalation. He's made that very clear. I think he thought he got on Monday a guarantee of some sort, or at least a, a verbal assurance from uh, Putin that he would not be the cause or the origin of escalation. Now that's worth what, what it's worth, it's not a written guarantee of any sort, but I think Macron still thinks that there is a possibility for talks, to, and that's a very different tone coming out of Paris at the moment to, to that coming out of London, for example. I thought uh, it was not a coincidence uh, that he also decided to take that this moment, this period, to announce a major new expansion of French nuclear energy. He's been talking about it, of course, but that is surely in stark contrast with Germany, which is ever more reliant on, on Russian gas, don't you think? Well, it is in a way France is uh, less, far less exposed, as you said, for it because of the it's it's a reliant anyway on nuclear energy for the majority of the, its electricity generation in France, and that puts it in a very different situation vis-à-vis -vis Russia than um, than that in Germany. Having said that, I do think one of the things I found very interesting about these this this dialogue that that Macron is trying to pursue is that he really is doing it in consultation, very very close consultation with Germany. They have differences, of course they do and they're, they're exposed in different ways to what happens or what might happen uh, should there be an invasion of Ukraine but he has Macron has been at pains to consult not only with Germany all the way through he after we left Kiev on Tuesday we went straight to Berlin where he debriefed the, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz um, and he has been at pains also to make sure he consults with all other NATO allies or at least you know uh, leading NATO allies obviously the US but also UK um, Baltic states and and others and I think that this has been a, a really different sort of Macron doing uh, diplomacy 
diplomacy, a very, a, a very consultative, inclusive attempt, not a unilateral effort that we, of the sort that we have in the past seen him try to pursue with, with Russia. Uh, Richard Haas, uh, tell us what you think about the administration's strategy of really publicizing every piece of uh, Russian, uh, every Russian move, every Russian uh, plot that they uncover, you know, that they may be, they may hatch a pretext for war by claiming that the Ukrainian government is cracking down on insurgents in eastern Ukraine. This strikes me a very considered strategy uh, and very different from what happened in Afghanistan, where they were, they, were, they were accused of having been caught surprised or unprepared. They seem determined to show this time that they will not be surprised and that they are prepared. It's very interesting. It's, it's a way of getting ahead of things, Fareed. And it suggests to me, one, we've got very good intelligence. And two, we're willing to make it public. And what we're trying to do, the United States, is take away from Vladimir Putin the, the pretext that somehow Russia's the victim, that Ukraine is initiating the, uh, the, 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 the crisis. So the administration has stayed one step ahead. Uh, most recently, it's been the charge that war could be imminent, which is a way of saying we've got lots of warning indicators that Russia is at a point that if they were to, that if they wanted to launch a war, they could. And I think this has been an attempt to wrong foot uh, Vladimir Putin. At the end of the day, again, though, he'll have to decide what price he's willing to, to pay. But in the meantime, I think it's a very creative use of what seems to be extraordinarily good uh, intrusive intelligence. You've got uh, 30 or 40 seconds, uh, Richard. It, it, at the end of the day, do you regard Putin as a rational actor or is Ukraine for him an emotional issue? <laughs> That's the uh, 64,000 ruble question here, uh, Fareed. And the question I have, is he like Khrushchev uh, in 1962, who ultimately backed down at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Or is Putin determined to go ahead, to press what he sees as his advantage and his window? I'll be honest with you, I don't know, but I think we're going to find out sooner rather than later. On that note, Nick Robertson, Sophie Petter, Richard Haas, thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. We will surely be back to all of you. Next on GPS, I will give you my take on something different, the American economy which I think is in much better shape than the American people give it credit for. So what is the disconnect between those two? I'll explain. Here's my take. There is a puzzle at the heart of American political life right now. Why are people so gloomy about an economy that is so strong? I'll get to inflation in a moment. But almost no economist predicted the force of the current recovery. Growth in 2021 came in at 5.7 percent, the highest in almost 40 years. The unemployment rate is 4 percent. Poverty has fallen below pre-pandemic levels. Child poverty has decreased by almost 40 percent in 2021. New businesses are forming at a record rate. Bankruptcies are falling. And American savings are healthy. The job numbers are so good that Senator Ron Johnson has refused to urge the Oshkosh Corporation to use federal funds to manufacture trucks in his home state. He said, it's not like we don't have enough jobs here in Wisconsin. The biggest problem we have in Wisconsin right now is employers not being able to find enough workers. The state's unemployment rate is just 2.8 percent. 
But what about inflation? Data released this week showed that the consumer price index rose by 7.5% year on year, an almost 40-year high. That sounds scary. And inflation is too high, partly caused by a too large COVID relief bill. But the fears of ever escalating prices are probably exaggerated. Year-over-year inflation rose to 7.5%. But as forecaster Mark Zandi notes, the increase is only from the extremely low base of 1.4% in January 2021 in the midst of the pandemic. The monthly rate of 0.6% is much lower than in October, for example. Crucially, according to calculations from the Center for American Progress, Americans' disposable incomes rose in 2021, even adjusting for inflation. And yet, American consumer confidence is at a decade low. A Gallup poll in January found that 82% of Americans felt that the country was on the wrong track. Joe Biden has the lowest approval ratings for this point in his presidency compared to any modern president other than Donald Trump. A number of commentators chalk this up to the COVID effect. New York Magazine's Ed Kilgore writes, when life stinks, the president's job approval numbers are low. New York Times columnist Paul Krugman points out that by historical standards, inflation is not all that high and wages are in good shape. So he faults a media narrative, especially from right-wing media, that has put all the focus on inflation and not enough on jobs. As a result, he notes, Republicans believe that the economy today is worse than in June 1980, a time when inflation was 14 percent and real wages were declining 6 percent a year. The Times' Nate Cohn makes a persuasive case that the timing of Biden's falling numbers suggests two causes, Delta and Afghanistan. Both happened in August 2021, which is when Biden's numbers took a sharp dip and never fully recovered. Cohn's larger point is that these twin problems made the Biden administration stop looking competent. Life was getting messy, and the president, who had promised normalcy, competence, and a science-based solution to COVID, was not delivering. All of this makes sense. But I wonder if there's a larger issue at play. People are not responding rationally to objective data. Right now, we are living in intensely polarized partisan times, Questions about consumer confidence or about the country being on the right or wrong track are meant to get at people's views of the world outside of politics. But nothing lies outside of politics anymore. According to a Pew poll that shocked many, roughly half of all Republicans now say that Donald Trump bears no responsibility for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and that he likely won the 2020 election. But do they really believe that? I wonder if they're answering a different question, one that goes something like this. Will you join the mainstream media and the country's urban elites in condemning Donald Trump? And their answer is an emphatic no. Intangible fears are today more important than objective facts. In one of the most careful scholarly analyses of the 2016 vote, the University of Pennsylvania's Diana Mutz explained in a paper that the data simply did not support the thesis that Donald Trump was being supported by those who were economically left behind and had lost jobs or seen their wages decline. She writes, candidate preferences in 2016 
reflected increasing anxiety among high-status groups. Both growing domestic racial diversity and globalization contributed to a sense that white Americans are under siege by these engines of change. The most telling statistic in the United States is surely this. This country, the world's leader in science, has one of the lowest percentages of fully vaccinated adults in the industrialized world. That is because a large number of Americans would rather risk exposure to a deadly disease than accept what they regard as diktats from so-called elites. That is the supreme example of the triumph of cultural anxieties and class conflict over facts, data, or even one's own well-being. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. Coming up in a moment here on GPS, my exclusive interview with Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. He tells me there is an abuse of Muslims going on in the world today that is much worse than what China is doing to the Uyghurs. Where is it? Stay tuned and find out. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan traveled to Beijing at the end of last week for the Olympic opening ceremonies and a meeting with President Xi. China is a neighbor, as is India, of course. On its other flank, Pakistan borders Iran and Afghanistan. That neighborhood makes Khan's country the hub of much intrigue and conflict. Prime Minister Imran Khan joins me now for an exclusive interview. Prime Minister Imran Khan, pleasure to have you here on, sir. My pleasure, Fareed. Um, let me first ask you about what for much of the world and certainly for the United States seems to be a, a, you know, a very urgent situation, which is what is going on in Afghanistan. Um, Pakistan is, of course, bearing the brunt of it. The UN estimates you have already taken in almost two million refugees. Um, what, how bad are things on the ground and what could happen uh, in the next weeks or months if there isn't a, a change in the situation? Well, Fareed, you know, people in the U.S. must understand one thing. Disliking Taliban government is one thing, but it's a question of uh, 40 million, almost 40 million Afghans. Half of them uh, are in a very precarious situation. So there's hunger, there's uh, one of the Afghan winters is, is extremely wicked, ruthless. And so they're facing winter, there are food shortages, malnutrition. Uh, the next uh, couple of months, everyone is worried that they could be one of the worst or already developing into one of the worst humanitarian crises. Have you found it e possible, easy to deal with the Taliban? Is the, you know, because with the U.S., Concern is that the Taliban is not giving guarantees on women's rights and things like that. What is your experience and what is your advice to the U.S.? Well, look, Fareed, what are the choices? Is there a, an alternative to Taliban right now? No, there isn't. Is there a chance that uh, if, if, there's, if the Taliban are squeezed, if the government is squeezed, there could be a change for the better? No. So the only alternative we have right now is to work with them. 
and incentivize them in 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 what the world wants inclusive government human rights women rights in particular that's the only way forward right now and the 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 flip side is if they are abandoned or these sanctions stay there and the banking system uh has no liquidity left because of the sanctions then the worry is that afghanistan could go into chaos humanitarian crisis chaos and then from pakistan's point of view we face two problems we already have 3 million afghan refugees there there were three terrorist groups operating from afghanistan into pakistan uh, they were right now with the taliban government uh, unfortunately when the when, when the flood of refugees came we have almost 250000 uh, afghans crossing into pakistan now amongst them unfortunately have these terrorist there's the pakistani taliban which is which has conducted attacks inside pakistan there's the baloch uh, insurgents who been uh, uh, conducting attacks and especially recently and then there's isil so our best hope is that a stable afghanistan will ensure uh, stability or peace in pakistan but it's not just pakistan because if it goes into chaos then we know why the the U- united states first came to afghanistan uh, 20 years back so therefore it's in everyone's interest that this does not descend into chaos the situation in afghanistan would you argue that the united states should recognize the taliban government well sooner or later uh, the taliban would have to be recognized now the question is the world wants some guarantees before they recognize the taliban so how far uh, 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 is the us going to push the taliban to actually conform to what they expect them uh, in terms of human rights now this is the question can will the taliban go all the way are they capable of going all the way bearing in mind that this is a very strong ideological movement uh, they represent a culture which uh, is completely alien to the western societies so therefore uh, somewhere it, it there has to be give and take but not recognizing them and freezing their accounts and uh, 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 their banking system Uh, the only people who are going to suffer is not the taliban government because no one can replace them right now but what will happen is that the half the population of afghanistan which is about 20 million people are at a severe risk you were a very eloquent critic of um us policy in the broader middle east of afghanistan pakistan with regard to the military actions you would always argue that those actions the drone attacks and such fed uh the forces that that produce terrorism um now what i'm what i'm struck by is you have isis or isil uh, attacking in iraq attacking in syria attacking in pakistan as you say in afghanistan the the, the us is out what is fueling the terrorism we are still seeing in the broader M- middle east is it all sunni versus shia is it what what are the roots of this terrorism now well the us war on terror actually bred terrorists uh, i can tell you from the pakistan's uh, example because pakistan by joining the us we had 80000 people dying in this uh, uh, 
joining the U.S. war on terror. And we saw the war, as it went along, it produced more terrorists. And I, I'm convinced it's exactly the same what happened in Afghanistan. Because these night raids in Afghanistan, the drone attacks, drone attacks, really the United States must review this policy. We watched what happened here. They were telling uh, people in the U.S. that the drones were very accurate and the people, they actually got the terrorists. Bombs exploding in villages. You know, how, how would they only get the terrorists? So there was a lot of collateral damage, and I'm afraid uh, people in the U.S. did not really, the public that does, didn't know the amount of collateral damage. We bore the brunt because what happened was we were considered collaborators of the U.S., so the, all the, the, uh, the revenge attacks were against the Pakistani soldiers, against the people of Pakistan. There were suicide attacks uh, all going all over the country. We lost 80,000 people. But the U.S. has withdrawn and the terror continues. Uh, much less. Uh, free the, you can't compare now. I mean, during the height of this uh, war on terror, we were. Islamabad was a fortress. I mean, you had suicide attacks going everywhere. So, um, the, compared to what used to happen now, you know, terrorism is, uh, is almost insignificant now. When we come back, I will ask Imran Khan why, as Prime Minister of one of the largest Muslim nations in the world, he does not believe that what China is doing in Xinjiang is a cultural genocide. And we are back with Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Prime Minister, you're just back from China. And I want to ask you, 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 you have strongly supported China, including in its actions in Xinjiang. You're the leader of one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. The United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, as you know, have boycotted the Olympics diplomatically because they say China is engaging in what they term a cultural genocide against Muslims in Xinjiang. Do you see it differently? Uh, for, firstly, we had our ambassador, uh, Abinul Haq. He went to uh, uh, Xinjiang and he, according to his observations, the picture is not what was uh, being portrayed uh, on the Western media. But more importantly, from our point of view in Pakistan, Kashmir is a disputed territory between Pakistan and India. Uh, over the last 35 years, Approximately, the figure varies, about 100,000 Kashmiris have died. Since 5th August uh, two, uh, 2019, uh, the, uh, the Indians have revoked the status of Kashmir, uh, which unilaterally, which is, according to the United Nations Security Council, a disputed territory between Pakistan and India. There are extrajudicial killings going on. There are no rights there. There's clam down there. There are... 800,000 Indian troops in, in the Kashmir Valley. Now, I find it very difficult that there is hardly any indigna indignation about what is happening in Kashmir compared to what is happening or what they say is happening in Xinjiang. So that, that's where I disagree with this. We as Pakistanis feel very strongly that this should be even-handed. Yes, if, if firstly, if Kashmir is different because it's disputed between Pakistan and India, confirmed by the U United Se uh, uh, Nations Security Council resolution. So for the, us, this is the immediate issue right now. 
And I'm afraid uh, it just doesn't get the attention it deserves. Are you saying that the treatment of Muslims in Kashmir is worse than the treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang? Uh, there would be absolutely no comparison. And I, I only have one source, and this is our ambassador in China, who's compared the two. There is no comparison there. I mean, in Kashmir, what is happening is criminal. But whatever is happening in Kashmir, do you condemn what is happening in China to, to Muslims there? If, 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 what, if I believe the, uh, the Western media, uh, unfortunately, um, right now, you know, Farid, we are sadly, and I hope it doesn't happen, we are heading towards another Cold War. And we all know once, you know, these sides are taken, then, the, you know, you, you, do you believe the, uh, which side do you believe? Because two sides are completely different. What China is saying is completely different to what the U.S. is saying or, or the Western media is saying. So who do you believe? That's why we asked our ambassador to give us uh, his opinion. And it's not, you know, what is uh, appearing in the Western media. But my point is that right now, uh, what should not happen is that we should not be heading towards another Cold War. And because then there's a lot of propaganda involved and you don't know what the truth is. Imran Khan, pleasure to have you on. There's more of my interview with Imran Khan on CNN.com. I ask him how bad the tensions between India and Pakistan are right now. But next on GPS, in the two years since the coronavirus began, why has the United States had so many infections? Why has Vietnam, a poor country, had comparatively few? The answers when we come back. If you ever miss an episode of GPS, you can always listen to it on our podcast. To try it out, open the camera on your phone and scan the QR code on your screen. We'll leave it up on the screen for a bit. Now, for the last look. On the first of this month, more than two years after the discovery of the first cases of COVID-19, Denmark became the first country in the European Union to lift all COVID restrictions. Gone are the indoor mask mandates, Gone are the isolation requirements for the infected. If two years of fear, uncertainty and loss had crushed Dane's spirits, it was not apparent the first weekend the restrictions were lifted when they flocked to nightclubs. This might seem alarming, but the truth is that the country's response to the pandemic thus far has been in many ways exemplary. In 2020, when the world knew little about the virus and how it spread, Denmark was one of the first countries in Europe to lock down, but as the New York Times notes, since then, the country has adopted a very flexible approach to COVID restrictions that the public has by and large supported. There were no draconian curfews. Guidance to socially distance and mask was generally followed, in part because it was often re-evaluated. Officials, including the prime minister, held regular televised press conferences about the pandemic. And there was little talk of a vaccine mandate, nor did there have to be. 81% of Danes are fully vaccinated. That compares to just 64% of Americans. So how did Denmark do it? The key may lie in the fact that the country has long had high levels of trust in the government and citizens have high levels of trust in one another. According to a new study in The Lancet that compares caseloads in 177 countries and territories from January 2020 to September of last year. 
those are the two most significant factors that are associated with low numbers of infections of COVID-19. This is an important finding. Siddhartha Mukherjee once called COVID an epidemiological mystery because it confounds conventional wisdom about which countries should fare better in a pandemic, namely rich ones. According to the New Lancet study, the rankings of the famous or infamous Johns Hopkins Global Health Security Index for the countries that were theoretically best prepared for a pandemic had no correlation with either the COVID case counts or the proportion of those infections that led to deaths. The authors looked at a dizzying array of metrics to find out what did. They looked at population level factors, age, body mass index, smoking habits. They looked at environmental factors, air pollution, altitude, even the number of bat species living in each location. They looked at structural factors, democracy, populism, levels of economic inequality. Age had the most significant link to fatality rates among countries, of course. But according to the study, the two factors that had the most statistically significant link to case numbers were citizens' trust in the government and trust in each other. Not inequality, not democracy, not even the effectiveness of the government or how much it's spent on health. So the U.S. with historically low levels of government trust and a high degree of political polarization had 545 cases per thousand citizens. Canada, which fares better in terms of trust, had just 346. Denmark, where one estimate shows 90% of the population trusts its government, had just 166. But it's not just rich countries that demonstrate this trend. As the Washington Post reports, Vietnam has a closed single-party political system and few hospital beds for its population, but it has a high degree of trust in the government. And it had 67 cases per thousand individuals, just 67, from January 2020 to September of last year. The study found that if every country had the level of trust that Danes do in their government, the global caseload might have been nearly 13 percent lower. If every global citizen had as much trust in his countrymen as the South Koreans, we might have had 40 percent fewer cases. Combined, that would have meant 440 million fewer coronavirus cases, according to Tom Boyke, one of the paper's authors. We all bemoan the lack of trust in the United States these days. But this shows how, in an emergency, a lack of trust and social capital can actually cost lives, hundreds of thousands of lives. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week.